this this is great. What a time to be alive. Charlie, what's your reaction to seeing this? I feel like I'm here at a historical moment in time. Taylor, how did you figure out a guy had a python in his pants? Python. Bloody bloody blah 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 bloody bloody blah blah blah. Cooler. Yeah, baby. The Como Water Cooler with Charlie Harger and Taylor Van Size. Hey, Taylor. Hey, Charlie. Oh, man, it's been a busy week. We've Isn't been crazy it? here. Yeah, well, you know, news happens. We we do a lot of stuff around here at, at Como Radio, mm-hmm. not only uh, behind the microphones, we but behind the scenes. We have a lot of cupcakes scenes. to eat. Yeah, a lot of Hawaiian food. Mm-hmm. They treated us to that today. So so listen, we we don't have much to talk about. I've got this big, long we, John Henry Brown. Oh, oh Charlie. We, we don't have much to talk about? Well, I mean, there's that thing. What? Do the, we have time for it? Oh, you mean the Donald Trump thing? The Donald Trump the thing. The thing that everybody in the world is talking about and will be talking about all weekend leading up to the presidential debate. Should we be talking about that, too? I think we kind of have to talk about it. We can't just take a weekend. The Poge Master, you think? Uh, yeah. Headed on over to Poji. Como's Jeff Pogela. The video obtained by the Washington Post comes from Access Hollywood when Trump was arriving on the set of Days of Our Lives for a cameo. Access Hollywood reporter Billy Bush was doing a segment on Trump's appearance. As the bus arrives, cameras were rolling and mics inside were hot. I moved on her, actually. You know, she was down on Palm Beach. I moved on her and I failed. I'll admit it. Trump begins to recall a story of how he tried to seduce a woman. I did try and f*** her. She was married. <laughs> huge news, Sarah. And I moved on her very heavily. In fact, I took her out furniture shopping. She wanted to get some furniture. I said, I'll show you where they have some nice furniture. <laughs> Trump was married to Melania at the time of the video. But it's unclear when the alleged furniture shopping took place. Also on the tape. I moved on her like a bitch, but I couldn't get there, and she was married. And all of a sudden, I see her, she's now got the big phony and everything. She's totally changed her look. At this point, Marianne Zucker, Trump's co-star during his cameo, walks out, and Donald Trump and Billy Bush begin to comment on her appearance. She's your girl's hottest in the purple. Whoa. Yes. Whoa. Yes, the Donald is good. Whoa. Oh, my man. And then this. i got to use some Tic Tacs just in case I start kissing her. You know, I'm automatically attracted to beautiful. I just start kissing them. It's like a magnet. And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Whatever you want. Grab them by the p***. And while Donald chews on his Tic Tac, he and Billy Bush continue to ogle Zucker. Look at those legs. All I can see is the legs. No, it looks good. Come on, shorty. Oh, nice legs, huh? Eventually, they get off the bus, the actress having no idea what has been said. Hello, how are you? Hi. Nice Trump, how nice are you? Nice you. Terrific. Nice to meet you. Terrific. You know Billy Bush? How Hello, are you? Nice to see you. How are you doing, Ariane? I'm doing very well, thank you. Are you ready to be a soap star? We're ready. Let's go. Make right. me a soap star. How about absolutely. a little hug for the Donald? You just got off the bus. So like a little okay, hug, absolutely. <laughs> Melania said this was bushy. okay. Just... And the fallout from the video has already begun. Billy Bush has deleted his Twitter account, and Donald Trump has issued an apology, calling it locker room banter before saying that Bill Clinton has said far worse on the golf course. Jeff Pogela, Como News. Uh, so, yeah, that's, that's a, yeah, we can't say anymore. Right. That 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 probably I, 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 it sure is going to be a nice weekend, don't you think? I think so. Yeah, it'll be a little rainy. Um, you know what team I support in football? Huh? The Seahawks. Yeah. Oh, I also like the Huskies who play here on, on Como Radio. That's right. The Seahawks have a, a, a break this weekend. Um, so I guess Sunday we'll be watching the presidential debate. Right, right. And, uh, well, that should be interesting. Yeah. Um, that, that will be interesting to watch. It's one of those things that Como is going to be airing commercial-free, and 
letting you make your own choices on. Yeah, I, I think you might want to check that out. It, it should be interesting. What I'll do, I'll do at home. I'm mm. going to have the surround sound, okay. uh, the AM blasting mm-hmm. throughout my entire house. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to be kicked back. HD? Oh yeah, absolutely. Nice. Going to be kicked back in my lazy boy mm-hmm. Barca lounger recliner. Naturally, drinking a nice Dr Pepper, mm-hmm. ice cold, right, and just listening for an hour and a half of radio magic. Uh, and Donald I, Trump, Hillary Clinton. I'm going to be listening to that on uh, on FM. Okay, yeah. or or you can listen to it on the app. The app too. Yeah. Uh, the website. Mm-hmm. Uh, anything and everything. Como TV. That's right. Comonews.com. Uh, I think I said that. I think you said the that too. The website. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's about it. Donald Trump interview. Um, that was that was something. That was all. That's that's all we can say. I just have a little warning for you here. Mm-hmm. We're going to go from that to my interview with John Henry Brown. You know who John Henry Brown is, oh, right? Oh, very famous lawyer. Yeah, defense attorney. He's been doing it forever. He's got this new book out. It's called The Devil's Defender. And John came in a few days ago and recorded an hour long interview with me here. So we're going to hear from John. He's going to uh, talk about his book, everything he's done throughout his life. Uh, some pretty frank discussion happens mm-hmm. here. So uh, I warned people last week, John Henry Brown swears in this interview. Right. Okay, there's com- some cursing. We're not playing it over the airwaves. It's not you saying it. But it's John Henry Brown saying it. Yeah. So when you, you listen, just remember in context, uh, this is a man who defended Ted Bundy. He, he the the things he's been through, the things he's defended, yeah. uh, hearing a, a, perhaps a curse word or two from him might not be the end of the world. He's seen some evidence. He's seen some evidence. So anyway, enjoy. This is John Henry Brown. We'll be back with a full show next week here on the Coma Water Cooler. John Henry Brown joins us. Uh, John, the book is called uh, The Devil's Defender. You moved around a lot when you were a kid. Uh, where do you say you grew up when people ask you? Mostly New Mexico and uh, Palo Alto, California, because you're right, I, we moved nine times, uh, but the, that's where I had my most um, uh, memorable experiences. Um, uh, the age was really important. I, I was at a wonderful age to be in the deserts of New Mexico and wandering with my dog through the deserts, and uh, it was Wonderland. If you read the book, you, you know about that, because it's in the book a bit my love affair with New Mexico. And then Palo Alto, of course, you know, was uh, so many things going on in Palo Alto. I mean, our high school band was the Grateful Dead. Uh, They were called the Warlocks, but the band was the Grateful Dead. And there was all this other stuff going on in Palo Alto. So I was very fortunate to have my high school years in Palo Alto. What were your parents like? Well, my father was um, very smart. Uh, I think my mother was smarter. But because of the generational thing, uh, she didn't have the opportunities that he did. Uh, He was a nuclear physicist, um, more or less trained, because there was no such thing back then. He was uh, part of the Manhattan Project, one of the original 24 members of the Manhattan Project. Hence, I was born in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. Um, Very smart man, very difficult uh, father in some ways, Um, but always had the best of intentions. Um, but I think his generation, I wrote in the book, you know, he didn't learn until late in life that uh, showing love was uh, not a weakness. Uh, but he learned finally. Uh, he just died last year at 97. Uh, my mother was, uh, she was a National Merit Scholar back when there was only one National Merit Scholar per school district and in New York. So she could have gone on and do other things, but uh, the times her father told her, uh, she couldn't go to college because she was a woman. And, but she was 
pretty much unconditional love. And it was a great combination for me because he was not. So uh, she made up for that. I think it's easy enough to say you were a bit of a rebel. Always. Yeah. And I, I just told somebody else a minute ago, a little while ago in another interview that I have the perfect job for a rebel. Uh, so I've, I think that's true. I, I've always questioned authority, um, sometimes responsibly and sometimes irresponsibly. Um, but uh, I was raised, my father was, uh, believe it or not, my godfather was gay. And this is in the 50s. And he worked for the Atomic Energy Commission also. And my father went to bat for him um, because they were going to fire him, my godfather. And I remember, when it, it was actually in the book and they edited it out, but I remember a meeting at my dad's house, our house in Albuquerque, where my dad was fighting for my godfather and basically put his job on the line. My dad put his job on the line mm -hmm. by circling the wagons in favor of uh, my godfather. And so my father was, you know, like pro-gay rights in the 50s, you know. So, I mean, it was, it was, I was raised by some pretty progressive people. Your teen years, you were in the 1960s, and you're very much against the Vietnam War. You didn't want to go. Oh, I wouldn't have gone. So what did you decide to do? Well, um, I had just, actually, in the beginning, I, I wasn't, it wasn't that clear I was against the war. And then I started reading about it, and then I started going to lectures about it, and then I started studying about it, and then I became very much opposed to the war. Um, and, you know, and I was drafted and I beat the draft because of my height. Talk about a silly way to, um, beat the draft. You couldn't be over six foot six and go to Vietnam and kill little people apparently. Um, so I was over six foot six. So I got actually a 4F, which was interesting because they later changed the classifications. Uh, so six, eight, and I think they were targeting me actually, because I started uh, students for democratic society in Denver and I was very radical politics in Denver in every way. And I was in a rock and roll band that was very well received, but shaking up the status quo in Colorado also. Um, so I had decided that if I didn't find a way out of the draft, um, I would have uh, gone to Canada, Mexico, or jail. And actually, I think my last decision before I knew I was going to get a 4F was I would just go, it would be more um, appropriate. Um, for me to go to jail rather than to run away. So I was ready to do that. You made that choice. There's a lot of ground we cover from mm -hmm. your college career to being somebody who, who's going to grad school. You you wind up in Washington, D.C. First of all, I had no idea until reading the book that you briefly worked for a network. Uh, you were kind of like Kenneth the Page from 30 Rock? Exactly. That's how I started. I worked for American Broadcasting Company in Washington, D.C. on a show which was the number one rated show at the time on Sunday's talk show. It was called Issues and Answers. It was also wonderful because it was the first woman producer in network news ever, Peggy Wheaton, and she had a lot of faith in me. I had a ponytail down the middle of my back. I used to wear an ABC blazer with a logo on it and put my ponytail underneath the blazer. I had White House press credentials because in D.C. I would always go to the White House and pick up press releases and everything, which shows they did no background checks in those days, you know, whatsoever. Yeah. So, you know, within two years of um, hanging out with Jimi Hendrix and Jim Morrison and stuff, I'm walking around the White House. So, yeah, it was it was interesting. And, and I actually really enjoyed journalism. Uh, matter of fact, I almost went that direction. So. I 
one of the great anecdotes in the book is something that just kind of is mind-blowing. We're talking about security checks and, and whatnot and the intense level of security we see everywhere nowadays. You were thinking about dosing the vice president of the United States. Oh, absolutely. And, yeah, I love that because the book is very dark in some ways and it's, it's very raw to me. I don't know that it's raw to a, a reader because they're not me. But um, that was one of the more lighthearted parts uh, of the book. And that was, yeah, um, Spiro Agnew, who, you know, some people don't even know who that is anymore, yeah. but who I called the big toe because his face looked like a big toe. Uh, and he had just uh, gone after uh, those of us who were opposed to the war, and he loved alliteration and things and called us a bunch of things. Mattering nabobs of negativity. Exactly. And he was on the show. I always knew who was going to be on the show the week ahead of time. So I brought a tab of LSD with me. And my job at that point, Peggy kept uh, elevating my job. So I started out as the page boy, and then I ended up being kind of an associate producer for a while. And so my, one of my jobs was to prepare people in the green room uh, it was a live show. You know, Howard K. Smith was the um, moderator, along with Frank Reynolds and um, Peter, the wonderful reporter who died. Peter Jennings. Yeah, Peter Jennings, yeah. uh, who was just a wonderful person. Um, and so I brought this tab of acid. And one of my jobs was to make them drinks. These people in the Nixon administration, it, this is a live show on Sunday. They would show up at 10. The show, I think, aired at 11. And they would drink. I mean, it's amazing. I, I don't know if that still goes on. But. My job was to make him drinks. And I knew back, Agnew had been on the show before, so I knew he would drink, and I knew what he drank. So I – and I figured – because they get there an hour early, so I figured if I put the LSD in his Manhattan, about 45 minutes later, it would be coming on, and you know, and, and he would, it would be live. Yeah. Um, so as I recount the book, it was a very close call on my part. I think I made the right decision by not doing that because – one, it would have been very immature. Two, um, Peggy would have gotten in trouble. And three, I would have been charged with probably attempted murder. You know, Which brings me to impulse control, because that's a thing I think a lot of people struggle with, especially young people. Would you even have a job if people had more impulse control? Um, probably. Um, but... Uh, there wouldn't be as much work <laughs> because, you know, some people um, just wrong place, wrong time. Um, one of the things, since I'm now picking and choosing my cases much more, um, I'm a great believer in self-defense, great believer in self-defense. And uh, the things I'm most proud of probably in my career is representing battered women and changing the law for battered women uh, nationally. And so something like that is, you know, a self-defense case, then that's going to happen it does usually involve impulses, um, but usually from both sides. So then you're in the dilemma of, you know, well, you know, did this guy really deserve to get shot because he was about to hit the daughter with a baseball bat? You know, my answer is yes. But uh, so in that case, the deceased, if he had had more impulse control, sir, there would not have been a case. Right. One thing leads to another is essentially yeah. what you're saying if we were to boil yeah. it down. You know, you, you, you talk in the book, too. Um, it, one of the cases, how it was important to get out in front of the media as a prosecution is telling one story. You want to make sure at least your voice is in the media cycle. That's something you continue to do now when there's a, a high profile case. I think of, you know, most recently Colton Harris Moore, or perhaps Bales. I, 
you are available when there is a high-profile case. Why is it so important to be involved in that narrative? Well, sometimes I'm available for the media because I respect the media, and I think a lot of lawyers don't. I think I'm not afraid of the media, and I think a lot of lawyers are, probably because I was in the media. And I know you're just doing your job, and I like to help people do their jobs. And so I listen, think, and then answer. Um, and so sometimes I'll do it just to assist. I'll get a call about, I mean, there's some talk about me doing commentary nationally on legal issues. I'm not sure I'm, I'm going to do that. But um, I'll get a call from somebody like you uh, saying something happened. What do you think about this? And so I'll talk to you about it. It's not even my case. But then in my cases, like with Colton and with Robert Bales, um, Sergeant Bales, uh, I really want to moderate uh, public opinion about both uh, and try to put focuses on things like in Colton's case, putting the focus on his rotten upbringing. And as Judge Churchill told him when she sentenced him to a sentence even lower than I was asking for, which was a little embarrassing, um, that he was really a triumph of human nature. She used those words because she said, I could be looking at an axe murderer uh, because of his upbringing. Um, and of course, uh, he's, if we hear anything more from Colton ever, it's going to be positive. Um, Sergeant Bales, unfortunately, Leon Panetta, who I think is a decent person, but when he was secretary of defense, he actually said publicly that the death penalty was on the table, which it was, and I never thought I could beat it. Um, so my feeling about the war is it destroyed a lot of our soldiers, I spent 10 days embedded in Afghanistan, as you know, in the worst part of Afghanistan. And I, I really want to make this very clear because my opposition to the Vietnam War uh, doesn't mean I didn't support our soldiers because there's a difference between supporting the war and supporting the soldiers. I support our soldiers now 100%. And, you know, basically our wars right now are being fought by the underclass for the upper class. And so... Um, my job with Bales was to try to get people to understand how we, this, this man was president of the high school class. He was a captain of the football team. He took care of a disabled young man who lived next door who was gravely disabled out of the goodness of his heart. Um, and we just destroyed him. And so that message had to get out. And I think it did get out. And I think that's one of the reasons we got the death penalty off the table. I want to get back to Bales in a moment because we, we sure. talk about these high-profile cases. And you have been, if you've lived in the Northwest for the past four decades, five decades, um, you've seen John Henry Brown. You have represented some of the most impressive cases. And more often than not, you win. Um, <laughs> That's true, actually. I, I do win more than 50% of my cases, but it's close. <laughs> but... You know, there's a, a less glamorous side. I I have a, a favorite story I like telling about you. This happened a couple years ago, probably when your caseload was a, a bit heavier. There's a, a comedian, he's a, like an L.A. or New York comedian, and he uh, got into some sort of assault case in Seattle, and he had to be arraigned at municipal jail in Seattle. And so I'm there. We, we got uh, Tim Hake from Cairo Radio there, and we're 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 waiting. And all of a sudden, in walks John Henry Brown. I see the blank look on your face right now. You're like, "What the heck is Charlie even talking about?" And so you you walk up to me and 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 Hake, and you go, 
what are you guys doing here? Don't you have anything more important to do? <laughs> and I, I mean, I go, well, we're here for the Cat Williams case. And you go, who? And there you are, John Henry Brown, and it's some sort of property dispute. Uh, this is not even this case. It's in municipal court. And you are uh, working uh, with a, a woman who had a beef with her neighbors. For all the big cases we hear about you, you you sometimes had the not-so-glamorous job, but you, you took it very seriously. Oh, well, I think I was probably joking. I knew you weren't there for my case, although that I remember the neighbor dispute case. What a crazy situation that was. Um, and it was a very small case, but it was very important to my clients because, you know, cases are not small to the clients, no matter whether they're misdemeanors or felonies. But I think I was joking with you guys. Uh, actually, I, I was concerned you might have been there for my case because I didn't want any attention in that case Why not? at all. Why not? Because... My client, see how do I do this with professionally, yeah. was um, a difficult person. And um, there was already blogs and things all about her. And I, um, there was somebody in the neighborhood that was trying to make the case into a big deal. And so I really didn't want my job in that case was to keep attention away. But I, if you're kind of getting to the point that I solicit or uh, somehow high-profile cases, that's really not true. Oh, and, and People the, believe that. Right. And no, that wouldn't be the case. If, but here's the thing. I mean, people. what I want to get your reaction to is people will go, man, that John Henry Brown, what a, you know, no good so-and-so. But if I were to kill someone, he's the first person I call. No. Somebody said that on a jury once. <laughs> so, I was picking a jury one time, <laughs> and, and the jurors said, um, well, I think, you know, they're supposed to tell the truth about everything, right? And the juror said... Um, well, I think if John Henry Brown is involved in the case, the guy must be really, really, really guilty or they wouldn't you know, hire John. And then I said to him right after that, I said, well, what would you do if you were charged with something you didn't do? And he said, hire you. <laughs> now, did the, the guy judge make still it on tells the jury? that story, huh? Did the guy make it on the jury? Yeah, he did. Yeah. Um, and so I do have, you know, there's no question there's a lot of people that don't like me. And I've run into that a few times recently. For a variety of reasons, and you know, there's no question that I'm controversial either. I, I, I don't crave it at all. Matter of fact, more and more, I, I, I prefer solitude at my little house on the beach in Mexico. Um, so, but you know, I have had high-profile cases. Um, I think in the past, they helped my career. Um, but you know, all my clients come to me. I don't go to them. Um, so, uh, and I think that. Clients in high-profile cases, such as Bales, I think, sought me out because they know that I do have the ability to get across to the public uh, the other point of view. Ted Bundy told you he did it. Oh, yeah. The interaction between... Eventually. Eventually, but he told you he did it. I yeah. mean, what was that like? Well, that whole thing, you know, I told you before we got on air, but... Um, I started the book as a journal um, at my house in Mexico because I'm alone and what am I going to do? And um, so I just, and I like to write a lot. I love to write. And so I just started writing as a journal, but I kept putting off the Bundy stuff. I had a box, I call it the Bundy box. You read the book, you know about that. And I took this box back and forth to my little house in Mexico four or five times before I ever did it. Wrote about Ted. And once I did, I'm, I'm getting around to your question. Um, I felt. Once I finished the story about Ted and the fact that I, one of my my girlfriend at one point was murdered um, in California, uh, 
And so the, the whole thing with Ted was so dark um, and so bizarre. Um, I think I only got through representing him and actually getting him a deal, which you know a lot of people don't know that I got a deal for him to save him from the death penalty, which he turned down. I think writing the book was a purge. And your question was, how did it make me feel? It creeped me out. What creeped me out the most was that one time in the jail cell in Tallahassee when he said, uh, I'm on the way out, and you know the no- noise of the jail doors and everything clicking and unclicking. And one more thing, John, what, Ted? And he goes, the reason you've been my lawyer and legal consultant so long is because we're so much alike. And that really creeped me out. Uh, because there's no way that was true, first of all. And secondly, the fact that he thought that really creeped me out. Uh, and then I went back. I mean, I was 30, I think. And I went back to this cheap hotel room in Tallahassee and smoked five cigarettes at the same time and looked in the mirror. And basically, that was a turning point in my career because I really thought I might I was in the wrong place. And I shouldn't be around evil like that. Uh, certainly somebody that thought we were alike. Um, so it was it, it was very traumatic representing Ted. And, and here we are, forty years later, and uh, you still wonder whether you should have handled the Bundy interactions differently. What I want to do, I want to play a, a quick passage from your audiobook. Uh, again, the book is called. Uh, you can get it, you know, in hardback or audiobook or uh, online ebook as well. It's called uh, "The Devil's Defender: My Odyssey Through American Criminal Justice from Ted Bundy to the Kandahar Massacre." We're here with John Henry Brown. For so long, I felt responsible for the lives Ted took. I was the one who assisted him in winning special privileges at the Glenwood Springs Jail. I told him about the death penalty laws in Florida, where he fled after his second escape. And I was the first person he called from Lake City while he was still basically at large and unknown to the authorities there. That's the part of the book that just kind of floored me. You think about this all the time. Um, Yes, um, and less so since I wrote it. So I really do think the book was a purge for me. Um, the darkness that I think I put in a little uh, locked box in my heart and in my brain about Ted is now opened. And I think I've put a lot of that to rest. Now, I haven't felt the same way about the death of my girlfriend. I'm not sure I'll ever be able to reconcile that. Um, but, um, yeah, I felt... Um, responsible and still, I guess, in some ways do. uh, But, you know, I never thought the authorities would allow Ted to escape a second time. I mean, how how would that, how did that even happen? I mean, and so I never thought... But you you knew in a way, at least part of you knew, with him losing all the weight, uh, and you acknowledged, at least in retrospect, you could tell. Well, if I was the jailers, I'd sure as hell want to know why he was losing so much weight. He wasn't... heavy to begin with and he was exercising as i mean he was in incredible shape when he escaped from the jail, uh, glenwood jail um and he had to go through this grate but of course i never thought i didn't i mean what kind of a jail has a grate that you can remove in you know 1980 whatever it was um so i you know i never assumed he would escape again or the authorities would allow him to escape but then when he did and early cuz the authorities have never admitted the real day um that he left but um, uh, he was in Ann Arbor, Michigan, watching the Rose Bowl game when the little blurb came on television, Ted Bundy escapes, and that was he'd already been gone a day. They didn't want to admit it because uh, there's only one jailer, and he used to leave and be with his girlfriend. And, 
Ted had an accomplice uh, who left a car for him and a lot of money. And he could have stayed in Chicago easily. And you want to get lost in America? Go to Chicago. You get lost, you get shot, basically. Um, that's supposed to be based on the news. Uh, yeah. And then he's in Ann Arbor. You can get lost in Ann Arbor pretty easily. But then he goes to Tallahassee, Florida, and kills um, people. And I felt responsible to a certain extent. Yeah. You turned 70 last month. I did. You were in your early 30s when you represented Bundy. Correct. So over all this time, you, you've written about it. You've had decades to think about it. What does 70-year-old John tell 30-year-old John about how to handle this case? Would you tell him to handle it any differently? Um, probably not. Um, you know, the goal was to try to get him uh, a life sentence rather than the death penalty. Which because, you did. Yes, I did. I know. And it, it floors me, some of the things... I've been able to accomplish. Um, but um, that was the goal, uh, and I did it. And then he turned it down in a very dramatic way, as you'll know by reading the book. Um, so, you know, I don't, I believe in life. I believe life is sacred. Uh, I really do. And I know I'm much more spiritually oriented than a lot of lawyers, not in a traditional way necessarily. But um, I, you know, I believe, you know, if ISIS mm. believed that we were all connected somehow, they probably wouldn't be chopping heads off. And if Ted believed we were all somehow connected, and I know maybe you don't even believe that, um, but I believe in the whole six degrees of separation thing, that you know that we are all connected one, how, one way or another. So I, I just don't, I believe life is sacred, and I don't think the government should take life uh, as well as you and I shouldn't take lives. And certainly ISIS shouldn't take lives, but um, so I, I wouldn't have told my, him to do anything differently. Um, other than maybe just turn down the case, which I think for my uh, mental health would have been better. I, I have to tell you, uh, much to the uh, consternation of Mark Prothero a few years ago, Gary Ridgway ag agreed to do media interviews with me. He, he hasn't done it before or since. Um, this is after Tony Savage was in the picture. And... Uh, Talking, just talking with Ridgeway. I, I talked with him several times uh, over so, the phone. So did, so did I, by the way. And, and you, uh, <laughs> you have a nice passage in the book about that as well. Um, that's evil. Oh yeah. That that that's uh, you've been around that, um, and there are people who are drawn to that. Do you get? I don't know. Maybe uh, this is just too inside baseball. I still get a lot of people who contact me about the Ridgeway story, wanting to either offer their opinions or, uh, you know, tell me, you know, some cockamamie idea. And, and one of the things that I saw that uh, I, I think was the most disturbing, and maybe you've seen this uh, with other clients, is just the sheer volume of fan mail oh. these people get. And Ridgeway, what he does, uh, surprise for you, if you're mailing him, he mails this, uh, every piece of mail he gets. He has a, a girlfriend who lives here in the Seattle area. He forwards that all along to her. She has boxes and boxes of boxes full of people writing fan mail to the Green River Killer. Disgusting. Uh, it's disgusting. The same thing happened with Ted. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, just mm -hmm. what what do you notice about human behavior that, you know, someone like, like you or me, we, we wouldn't 
we, we, we wouldn't even cross our minds. What, what surprises you as, as somebody who uh, represents sometimes bad guys? What, oh, yeah. what did people no do? No question for? about it. I mean, I never thought that people were born evil, and I, I never wanted to believe that. I think that we're all born with an opportunity to do good and that nobody's born evil. But that opinion changed when I met Bundy. Now, the yeah. good news is very few others I think I would call pure evil. And I think Ted was. But Ted was also different because Ted, in that in the Miami jail cell in situation in the book, he tells me with tears in his eyes that he wants to be a good person, that he's just not. Mm. And most sociopaths don't say that. Um, so that was an interesting exchange in to say the least, he had tears in his eyes and everything. So, but to get to your question is, you know, he eventually married uh, a woman um, who, by if you met her um, in a newsstand and just struck a conversation up with her, you would think she was totally normal um, and funny and nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't know what her intentions were. I think some people uh, would reach out to somebody like Ridgeway uh, or Ted because of their religious beliefs. Uh, so in other words, their motives are sincere. Um, you know, here's another fallen angel. Maybe I can save them. I think there's yeah. a lot of people like that. And I'm, I think I respect those people, you know, a lot of clergy people and things, you know, last person Ted talked to was a clergyman. Um, so I think, but then there's the others with just the, um, mental illness of some kind. There's a book I noticed just by looking on Amazon the other day that it's written about women who do, I think it's called the mass murder, um, groupies. Yeah. Something like that. Um, and I don't know with the psychology behind that if it's they just think they get a little piece of attention by attaching to them some someone whose attention. Um, I don't really understand it. I just know that it exists, and certainly all the motives are are not altruistic like the clergy members would be. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's I don't know how to explain it. Um, people feeling inadequate about their lives and maybe their lives would be more adequate if they tried to help somebody? Maybe? Yeah. I don't know. While I was doing the Ridgeway interviews, I was also, sometimes on the same day, I was going to the Bales hearings. And so these thoughts of just death, just everywhere, it 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 was uh, spiritually draining. Absolutely, and I know you have to go through the same thing. How, do you compartmentalize? How, how do you get your head around that? Well, I'm really he- happy to hear you express your feelings about it because that's great for you as a human being. I think. Um, I think denial works for me. Yeah, <laughs> um, and I'm not sure that's healthy. Um, but I think um, denying uh, those feelings, particularly since I lost the love of my life to a murderer, mm-hmm. you know, I've been married a lot of times, as you probably know. And I think the reason, one of the reasons is, not the reason, is because Debbie was murdered, because I think she was the love of my life. So um, that adds to the whole intrigue for me, I think. Um, it's um, It's very difficult. You know, I was interviewed, I did a... They did a profile of me in the New York Times and um, not long ago. And um, 
the reporter asked me why I did what I did, and I, I don't know if I can swear on your program, yeah. so I won't. So, but I, I was tired the day. It's a podcast. Okay. Uh, then I'll say, you guys can bleep it out if you want, but the, I was uh, tired that day, and I was a little tired of the interviews in the middle yeah. of the bail stuff. And, and he said, why do you do what you do? And I said, because it's my fucking path. Uh, and he said, he was stunned. And he said, well, that's not very romantic. And I'd say, it's not. This is not a romantic job. I, I tell lawyers, young lawyers, not to do this job unless it is your path. Mm-hmm. And, and it is my path. It has been. Actually, I think I'm turning the corner now to do some other things. Um, um, but, you know, you expressed it as well as I could, um, you know, going from Ridgeway to Bales. And Bales is really interesting because he was such a great person who we just destroyed. I mean, this is a great person mm-hmm. and it still is in some ways. There's no way you can compare uh, uh, Ted and Bobby. You can contrast them because Bobby's not a sociopath. You know, he completely cracked. Uh, I, was, I, I mean, essentially, uh, I, I think your argument and uh, in the book as well, I, I'll just kind of boil it down. It became a PTSD and steroid freakout. Absolutely. Well, he had a concussive head injury also. So he had PTSD. He was diagnosed with it. And mm-hmm. they just went, uh-uh. And, you know, the soldiers, I, you know, after being embedded with them, and boy, I came to respect these people so much. But it's like walking around a... a a ward in a mental hospital where there's major depression everywhere. When I was at Kandahar, which is a huge field, mm-hmm. there's no eye contact. People look at the ground. Um, it's it, it, we're destroying these yeah. guys. Um, you know, in Vietnam, you only had one tour, unless you re-upped yourself. And Bobby was on his fourth, uh, and he just cracked completely. And you know, the week before, he'd seen a friend's leg blown off, and he was going around with back. Uh, plastic uh, garbage bags picking up body parts of other people um you know he and, and he was the special forces so i get in trouble all the time the special forces were giving him steroids and other drugs um and out that night alcohol but that's no excuse for his behavior but it's an explanation i mean he just cracked in your early years of being an attorney, you didn't have the tools you have now. And there's a, a part in the book where um, a lot of people would call it, you hit rock bottom. W- what was leading up to that? And you mean my falling in the pool of cat shit? Yes. And what's the question? What led up to that and uh, what what turned around for you? Well, that was a pretty good tap on the shoulder. You know, just so the listeners understand is that I had just won... Uh, death penalty case that night. And I never did drugs or alcohol when I was in trial or usually a month or so before trial. I was really good at that. Actually, when I went to treatment, people laughed at me because I was a lightweight and they wondered what I was doing there. But uh, I definitely needed to be there. Um, and so um, I, I just on na- literally on national television. Um, mm-hmm. And we partied, started partying, which was our tradition if we won because we behaved ourselves for so long. And those were the cocaine days. So we were doing cocaine and drinking and everything. And the dealer was not home, which was unusual. So I decided to drive out to his house and go through his back door. You just won a death penalty case. Your picture is on the front page of every newspaper in America. That's right. And you say, screw it. Yeah. And it was, uh, you know, if you, so it was a great aha moment because I had my only really nice suit on. I had this beautiful old pristine 
Mercedes-Benz that was old but beautiful that had license plates on it that said acquit. It wasn't subtle at all. The cops gave, gave me those license plates, by the way. I represented some policemen, and I won their case, and as a gift, they gave me these license plates that said acquit, which most policemen didn't understand. I got them from policemen, so I get stopped all the time. You know, there's that jerk, John Henry Brown or whatever. So I got my leg on the fence. Uh, my car was still running, a really bad area of town. Um, jumped over the fence. My pant caught on a nail, and I fell in a pool of water and catch it. And I'll never forget that because there was rain coming over the fence, and I could see the lights of my car behind the fence. And I went, there's something wrong with this picture. And so I did, however, go into this person's place and get more cocaine and went back. But that was what got me into realizing that I could be really successful on the outside and miserable on the inside, which was true. Yeah. Uh, and so then I started my recovery path, which took a while. But uh, that was the beginning of my recovery path. Why isn't the death penalty just? Well, first of all, I mean, it's a real simple uh, knee-jerk answer is that I don't believe killing is right under any circumstances, and that's self-defense, because as I told you, I'm a great believer in self-defense. Yeah. I have guns. I'm not an anti-gun person. And I know this is Seattle. God, we're supposed to be politically correct. Guns are tools. You know, every, I'm not sure what you, I forget your question, but I did want to say this. You know, every school shooting in the United States, mm -hmm. every one, and I was involved in two of them, involves mental health. Everyone. Mm -hmm. um, and so by, you know, two of the biggest problems in our country right now are untreated mental health, as demonstrated by one of the presidential candidates <laughs> and um, uh, and mass incarceration. So there's, you know, the, those are two huge problems, I think. Um, and so to focus on the guns, for instance, in the school shooting thing, and I'm not saying we shouldn't do more to regulate guns, and the guns should never be in the hands of mentally ill people, and they should never be in the hands of criminals. Um, mm -hmm. But they're tools. Um, and what you need to do with the school shooting people is you need to there were red flags in all those cases. Every one of those kids that went in and did mass shootings, there were red flags all over the place. But we have such a shitty mental health system uh, that, you know, kids are not trained. I, I said to my sons, uh, we had dinner the other night, and I said to them, and they loved the idea, they said, when you're in ninth grade, you should be getting a class for half the year about mental health. Yeah. And so you can ha recognize the symptoms of your own and your friends. And say, well, maybe Jimmy really is dangerous. Uh, maybe Jimmy really is going to kill himself. Uh, I think that's something that that we're ignoring. Um, so I I don't know if I answered your question. Or not. No, I, 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 I maybe I, I can also just kind of circle around to this because I'm one of these people. Uh, even as a kid, I was watching a lot of news. You know, I'm, I'm me, too, my, me too. Actually, I'm in my early forties and. Uh, you look so young. Yeah, th thank you, Jim. <laughs> Wami Massacre. Oh, boy. Now, that is one of the first stories I remember. And I, when I think about it now, it, 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 you know, it, it's real just primary colors. It's, it's nothing really intricate or, or deep. I, I mean, it was so long ago. And that's the first time I think I really remember you being on the scene or, you know, many people, uh, we hear about the WAMI massacre and we're like, oh my God, a mass shooting in Seattle. It was terrible. 13 dead people. 13 dead. Executed. And, and 
John Henry Brown, the attorney uh, for one of the shooters on the case. Um, it, it's so far, it's so past, distant in, in the past. What do you wish people would know about that case today? Well, um, first of all, that's another case where, you, you know, uh, I believe that there was, I, you're going to, and people are going to laugh at this because I'm a lawyer, right? Mm. And egotistical, flamboyant, whatever they like to call me these days. Um, I can find but, a list. Yeah, you know, but you could. <laughs> is uh, it's a death penalty case, so every member of the jury has to believe in the death penalty. Yeah, and so and there's 13 really nice, um, well-known uh, Chinese people who were executed. Um, so I really never thought I could save his life. Um, but that's where give it, you never giving up is you know my favorite Peter Gabriel song, "Don't Give Up." Mm-hmm. And for all you listeners, get sad someday, just listen to that song. Uh, so don't give up. Uh, and so we plotted away and plotted away, and we saved his life. The co-defendant got the death penalty. It was eventually overturned because of the inequities, because mm-hmm. um, we had not gotten the death penalty. What do I, um, uh, what do I think about it is it's a really good example of how the death penalty would do nothing. Um, you know, Benjamin's in prison for the rest of his life. He'll die in the geriatric ward at Walla Walla. Um, I don't think he was as evil as Willie, who was the other person. And that's interesting because Willie got the death penalty and Benjamin did not. Uh, there were separate trials. It goes through in the book. It's kind of complicated why that happened. But, you know, it's just it's a perfect example of how wasting it probably cost the government $2 million to prosecute those cases back then. Now it would cost $10 million. Um, but, it's, but I don't think you should put a price tag on death penalty. And and I piss off other defense lawyers mm-hmm. who, when they hear me say that, because they think maybe that's why you, you win them and, and bargain with them. Um, it is a factor. But, um, you, you know, I, I just think it really hurts um, the fabric of our society to say, thou shalt not kill, and but if you do, we're going to kill you. I, it just, it's never made sense to me. I was raised by anti-death penalty people. Mm-hmm. Um so it's just never really made it. I became a believer in the death penalty when my girlfriend was murdered. And that was the worst part of my life. The nine months I just wanted to rip that guy's throat out um, or something worse. Um, so, Did they ever find her killer? No. I've talked to the detectives in Oakland a few times about Bundy and stuff because they now know that he was involved in Northern California. I did not know that mm-hmm. uh, when I was representing him until he told me in Miami, which was the last time I saw him. But he didn't say anything about Debbie. And the police in Oakland do not think Ted had anything to do with Debbie's murder. But he, she fit the profile. She was very beautiful, long brown hair, parted in the middle, very compassionate. Very, she probably would have let anybody. She was working in a halfway house at the time she was murdered. Hmm. So it has not been solved. Um, but anyway, so the, the time that I spent believing the death penalty, and then I had that powerful dream where Debbie actually came to me in the dream and said, don't believe in things I never believed in. That's not a tribute to me. Um, so then I came back. Um, so she's been my, even though I've lost her a long time ago, she's saved me a lot of times through, uh, coming back into my life one way or another. Do you suppose we, we talked about the money surrounding the death penalty? First of all, are you going to find 12 people in, uh, King County who will be unanimous on the death penalty uh, I, in support of it? I doubt it. 
Um, that's been proven um, the last couple of years with some horrific cases involving the deaths of children and gruesome, where yeah, the juries did not case. did not impose the death penalty. Um, and I think that that's a real tribute to our community, um, because I don't think it's because of politics. I think the jurors is because of the beliefs, and I. I it's comforting me to uh, believe that uh, even people who are in favor of the death penalty, because you have to be in favor of the death penalty to sit on the jury. Yeah. And they'll still uh, be, you only need one life voter. And I don't know how many there were in Anderson. I know that in the Wami case, I had five life voters, and you just need one. Um, so 12 angry men. Uh-huh. Yeah, right. and, and, and women. And one of the life voters was an IRS agent. I kept on the jury to the, and I was criticized by every uh, other defense lawyer. I'm really controversial in many ways, and uh, so you know, other defense lawyers thought I was insane leaving an IRS agent on the death penalty case. You're probably. And he was a life voter. He was a life voter. You're you're the wrong guy to ask about this because I know you're against the death penalty. Um, but I, I, my limited understanding of the Constitution and equal protection, if you got a guy like Ridgway killing 49 that he admits to brutally, um, that even if somebody is convicted at trial, that is a heck of an argument to bring uh, to the upper court saying, you know, my client may have done this, but here's Gary Ridgway not getting the death penalty. How How can that be? equal law or uh, am i onto something with that that absolutely um unfortunately our supreme court state supreme court has been uh uh, has heard that argument it's called proportionality in the law um that death penalty has to be proportionally administered and ridgeway is the perfect example of, of how it isn't um because there's a case right now pending in uh snohomish county the most recent a shooting thing involving the young man who who shot his girlfriend and some others, and the prosecutor in Snohomish County is seriously de- considering the death penalty. So you know there are three deceased people in that case. It's an awful case. It's sad. I know more about the case. I can't tell you about it right now. I'm I'm not doing it at the moment. Uh, I don't know if I will anymore uh, do those cases um, because of financial reasons. Um, you know I did one me for twenty five thousand dollars. Uh, most death penalty cases cost two or three million. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and our Supreme Court has been, it's been argued to the Supreme Court, literally, that because of Ridgeway, uh, how can you uphold the death penalty for someone in a one deceased person case, which happens in eastern Washington and other places? And our Supreme Court just said, oh, well, you know, they, they, they weren't persuaded by it. Uh, the governor is persuaded put a moratorium on it, which I'm very happy to see. But that's nothing long-term. Uh, I think actually statistically, now you can, you're can probably more up on it than I am, but I think statistically now in Washington State, it's probably 50-50 as far as people believing uh, in the death penalty or not, or maybe even more so against the death penalty than 50%, which when I was doing WAMI, we had studies done, and it was about... 12% who are against the death penalty. So I, I think when uh, the governor in Illinois, who later got in trouble himself, found out that 12 people on death row in Illinois were most likely innocent because of DNA, and then he commuted those sentences, 
uh, it changed a lot of people. I know people who were pro death penalty, and when they heard that, they that was it for them. They said, "I'm not. I don't believe in it anymore." I mean, if you're going to make those kind of mistakes, you know, I'm not going to believe it anymore. I, I think in the book you mentioned something about charging Colton Harris more a dollar for his defense. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that was it. Was um, it was fun. Um, that's a long story. I don't know how much you want to go, but Bob Friel, who's a writer for Outside Magazine, had done a series on Colton, uh, called me one day and said, and I'd heard a little bit about Colton, um, but I wasn't Colton junkie. Uh, and he told me about it. Bob tells me about it on the phone. I didn't know Bob either. He called me out of the blue because I'm John Henry Brown. And he said, can I put on the on the internet that you'd be willing to represent Colt if he turns himself in? So he filled me in on a little bit. And I said, yeah, okay. And you know, I never thought it would happen. Um and then it did. And then his mother, who was very problematic in uh, Colton's life, very problematic for me to deal with. She passed away recently, and I'm sorry about that. But she called and, and something, and I, I said, well, I have to be retained. And she said, well, we don't have any money. I mean, she was living in a trailer that literally didn't have a floor, um, just two by fours. And I said, send me a dollar. So she sent me a dollar. And so that made my retainer. Uh, and so... You know, that's the way I established the attorney-client privilege. And then Colton did know about me. He asked about me when he was in the Bahamas. He asked, he said, my lawyer is John Henry Brown. And that's what Robert Bales did also when he was in um, Kuwait. Now, I, I know one of the rules of uh, being a lawyer is always know the answer to the question before you ask it. I, I'm just having this flashback to the late 90s. Uh, where was your office then? In the late 90s? Yeah. Either the Smith Tower or the Alaska building. Okay, because it must not... And see, this is why I also will edit this out. There there was some other... I was visiting a cousin who had a little tiny office at one of these active space places. I could have... It must have been one of your cohorts. You know, probably wouldn't have been Savage, but another big-name lawyer... I don't know if he had perhaps taken more of a case uh, than he should have. He didn't charge enough. Uh, He's in like one of these basically storage units working out of those uh, as he builds back up his practice. Uh, Is it expensive to be represented by John Henry Brown? Well, it should be. I mean, I just did the math actually when when I was before I came to this interview because we put 2,500 hours of free work into Sergeant Bales's case. The smartest and most gifted lawyer I've ever known in my life is Emma Scanlon, who now works for me. Again, she took a little time off, but she basically put together the whole- She had a baby, uh, right? Yeah. She's now eight and a half months pregnant now. And so um, anyway, she's come back, and um, she's the one I give most of the credit for with Colton and with Bales. and so let me just put things in perspective because people think I'm wealthy, which is really funny because, you know, I have a nice car, but it's 12 years old. I live in an apartment uh, by myself, 800 square feet. Uh, I have a house in Mexico that's rather humble, and I don't have a lot of money. Um, people don't think the opposite, actually, mostly. But my overhead in my office is between fifty and $60,000 a month. That's, that's, that's paying rent, paying staff, salaries. Staff. It's yeah. not a fancy. It's a nice office. Yeah. I love it. It's in Pioneer Square, and I love my building. But it's salaries, you know, and I believe Governor Evans told me when I worked for Governor Evans, he 
because he did so many good things. It was back in the days when there was such a thing as a liberal Republican. Right. And uh, I asked him one time how he was able to accomplish so much. And uh, he said, always hire people that are smarter than you are. Hmm. And I never forgot that. So they're difficult to manage sometimes, but it's expensive. Um, so, you know, there are many times, I mean, particularly in the Bales case, that's a million dollars at $300 an hour, which yeah. is cheap for a lawyer. So, and you know, I didn't get paid anything, basically. They helped pay my way to Afghanistan. But um, other than that, I didn't get paid. Um, I was supporting nine people at the time. And they were, and this was about three years ago, right? And I was supporting nine people, including my dad, who was alive at the time, and my family and my staff, nine people. And there were times three years ago when I had $500 in the bank. This is a very difficult job to make a lot of money from. I saw on the news, maybe you saw it, maybe uh, you have better things to do. I hope you have better things to do. Mark Garagos, uh, the other day uh, we have the singer Chris Brown uh-huh. kind of holding himself up. There's this standoff with the LAPD or whatever. And Mark Garagos, by golly, he strolls in there. I'm Chris Brown's attorney. And a, an hour or two later, he comes out with his client. Now, Garagos, if you don't know him, I know who he is. Yeah, it, uh, I'm asking listeners right now. They're listening. They're going, Garagos, that name's... Is that her? No, no, Garagos. He is uh, a very well-known lawyer in Southern California. He's kind of, you know, the go-to guy. Uh, you've never been that flamboyant. But is that something you could see yourself doing? Well, you mean making a big deal out of myself? In well, order not to... making a big deal of yourself, but let's say you've got a celebrity client who's being a little zany. Um just to save his skin, are are you the type of attorney who would maybe walk in through the uh, media uh, phalanx, the police uh, guard, and uh, go in and get your client out and maybe prevent worse things from happening? Oh, sure. I wouldn't mind doing that. Um, and, you know, a lot of people think that I, I solicit attention, but I really don't. I get it, Yeah, but I don't really solicit it. And now more and more I don't like it, as I told you earlier. Um, I'm happy the book is doing so well, very happy and very surprised. But if Mark was doing that in order to take the heat off, see, that's what I think. Mm. When you ask me that question, I'm thinking, well, he's trying to take the heat off um, his client by becoming the focus. And there's in uh, one of the judges, a judge in King County right now who was a prosecutor before. He was a great prosecutor, a great guy. He's a great judge. And he said to the New York Times when they did that profile, he said, yeah. John takes the focus off of his clients by putting it on himself. <laughs> and I don't, I don't consciously do that. I don't do much in court consciously. Um, so, uh, but I think if that's what Mark did in order to get him out, fine, go for it, brother. You know? Yeah. Uh, and the word flamboyant is interesting because people have introduced me that way and I finally realized Flamboyant actually means a lawyer that actually has a personality. That's that's about it. Just speaking of flamboyance, what's going on with the hair? Your hair seems a little bit shorter. Than- well, actually, it's actually longer right now. But okay. I, I went to and got a haircut this morning because I had to do something on television before okay. you. Uh, so it looks a little less. You know, my hair is is quite long right now, and, and if I have my way, it's going to get a lot longer. So, <laughs> hey. Uh- I'm, a, I'm happy to have it at my age. Let's put it that way. Yeah, no kidding, right? Uh, just a couple last questions. Um, John Henry Brown 101. What's the first thing 
I need to do if I'm arrested? Uh, be quiet. Um, and I see this, you know, uh, the government's, this is very important for me to say in this round of talks I'm doing about my book. The government's own statistics, and you may not even know this, and the public doesn't know it, and I wish they do. So now I'm going to say it. The government's own statistics say that approximately 5% of the people in prison are most likely innocent. In Washington State, that turns out to be 900 individuals. And I think people really need to mm. keep that in mind when you talk about defense lawyers or not liking defense lawyers or whatever. That we have, my dad, and I wrote about it at the end of my book, said, because um, he's a very smart man and he's very progressive in many ways, said, um, if we're going to have a free society, there have to be people like you doing what you do and doing it well. And then he paused and he just said, I'm just sorry it's you. And you know what? He was right. Um, so what do you do if you're arrested? No matter what, and I respect policemen tremendously. I've represented a lot of policemen. They don't do everything right. Uh, they don't do everything wrong. Um, but you don't say anything. You know, you basically, first thing you say is the police stop you is, um, am I free to go? That's the first thing you should say. And if they say no, then you don't say anything else, no matter what they tell you. Just tell us your side of the story. We'll let you go. You know, and I've just seen so many cases where that's been done and then people get arrested. Um, you can't talk your way out of anything with police officers. You know, uh, you've got to go through the system. You've got to get a lawyer. You've got to have the lawyer talk to the prosecutor. Um, and it's not disparaging police officers who I respect tremendously and probably have the hardest job in our society right now. What took you the longest to learn in life? Still am. Um, I think that there are other paths. Um, you know, you can't be on all the paths, although I tried that once, didn't work out very well. Um, so there are more than one path. Uh, there is one more than one path. I mean, being a lawyer is not the most important thing in my life. And uh, now with some opportunities coming up for me and turning the age I have, um, I see... <coughs> 70. Yes, right. I see... Uh, doors opening for me that I never thought would open um, at my age. And, you know, being single again and finally putting that in perspective and realizing probably because of losing the love of my life to a murderer. Um, so I see my, I see doors turning. I, I actually feel more hopeful about my personal future in the next few years uh, than I have um, in a long time. Are you going to be one of these Tony Savage guys where you're doing it till until you can't anymore? No. No? No, absolutely not. Um, 70's kind of a milestone. That's... It is, and it was scary to me. I feel less less fearful of the future today and recently than I have for decades. Yeah. And uh, something's going on. Um, I, I think I'll be, maybe I'd be a mentor. Uh, maybe I, I found myself in situations with some very famous people recently. If I mentioned their names, you would know them all. So mm -hmm. would your listeners. And who just started talking to me. Men, your age. How old are you? 41. Yeah. Your age and a little older just ended up talking. And these are some really well-known people I happen to be in situations with. And I'm just, often they just mistaken to for Brad Pitt. So I, I, I don't know if maybe. No, there's, believe me, well, really well-known people and just coincidentally was with them and then ended up i had dinner with a national correspondent yeah i won't mention his name uh but 
everybody knows who it is, and in New York. And it was supposed to be for just 45 minutes or an hour and ended up being four hours long. <laughs> and I realized that he's just a normal person. And, and I just got the feeling he didn't have anybody to talk to. So I think what I've learned to answer your question, I finally came to answer your question. I think I've become a much better listener. And that's, that's taken me a long time. John Henry Brown, thank you so much for your time. I really do appreciate it. The book, again, The Devil's Defender, My Odyssey Through American Criminal Justice from Ted Bundy to the Kandahar Massacre. Thanks, John. That's an honor, really. Thank you.